Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Happy New Year, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of Terry's Talking. David Campbell, sports manager at Cleveland.com here alongside award-winning sports writer and columnist Terry Pluto from The Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com. Terry, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, David. How are things going with you? Pretty good? Yes, better than what the Browns are. Yeah, for sure. So I have, by the way, I have some advice in the new year for everybody listening all right when it comes to us and pro sports and i've been writing this for decades and replying to fans and that never let the millionaires ruin your day <laughs> there's a t-shirt to be made there i think never and let the millionaires ruin their day they just remember because you probably won't be ruining theirs truer words were never spoken so all right let's get really <laughs> I, I, I just leave this this is my other thing it's like if the browns falling apart this season and just the whole mess in Pittsburgh. Say that's the worst thing that happens to you this month. Would you sign up for it? Yes. You sure would. Yeah. Yep. So that's the – unfortunately, we'd like to have it that the Browns beat Pittsburgh, and I'm having a tough month because of COVID and that. And, boy, that would have been – you know, but that Monday night was a lot of fun to watch, but they didn't deliver one of those. Yep. Yep. All right. So let's get into this. Um, the okay. topic on everybody's mind this week is Baker Mayfield. And there seems to be some thought going around that he might be done here, that not only might the Browns want to move on, but he might, might want to move on. Uh, we've heard a lot of interviews with Kevin Stefanski and Baker the last few days. What's your take on where things stand and what's your gut feeling on how this is going to resolve itself? You know, if I'm Baker, I'm probably thinking, is this going to work for me here or not? I've been here four years. And the Browns were thinking, well, Baker's been here four years. Is this going to work or not? Uh, the thing about whether Baker wants to say or go is, is pretty much irrelevant. He's under contract for next year. So he has no real options. I mean, I guess he'd go on to raise a stink, but I think he's smarter than that. Uh, the question the Browns have to ask is, if not Baker, then who? And I'm getting, well, they should trade. One guy wrote me, well, they should trade for Russell Wilson. And it's like, Russell Wilson has a no trade. You know, there's all these things. They should trade for Aaron Rodgers. I'm not sure Aaron Rodgers maybe wants to leave Green Bay after all this. You know, Rodgers in general is kind of a grumpy guy. And I think he's kind of go muttering and complaining into the sunset. And it's very possible he's going to end up doing it whole thing at green bay and well be, yeah and with the season they're having it seems like he's patched things up there and as happy yeah. as can be yeah mm -hmm. 
And then you look at, he probably watched this whole thing with Roethlisberger. And to see that, if that's how it ends for Ben, what a way to end. And, you know, you always wish that that was the Browns quarterback. But if you're an older quarterback like like uh, Aaron, you could say, all right, I see what happened with Brady at, with Tampa Bay. But I also see what happened with Ben in Pittsburgh. And put, you put yourself in his shoes, and that could be me. And do you want to leave and go to another team? So, yeah, that all figures into it. So it's been really interesting to hear the press conferences the last few days. And, yes, it's after a loss. And people are, you know, frustration has been the key word. And I think you've hammered that, you know, in your columns. Like, <laughs> the fans are frustrated. The players are frustrated. The coaches are frustrated. And people say things when they're frustrated. But, like, there's kind of this – subtext going on where Baker feels like the coaches are not making in-game adjustments. The coaches, you know, Stefanski in his um, day after press conference kind of dropped in that sometimes it's not all the blocking's fault or the play's fault. The ball's not coming out at the right time. They're kind of taking little shots at each other to kind of protect their turf a little bit, but you think that could all be resolved in the off season. Maybe this is just emotions playing into this because it's a pretty stressful time for everybody. They're both under fire. And they're um, trying to protect themselves. I mean, one of the things I've mentioned before about Stefanski is that if he keeps saying, you know, it's on me, I got to call better plays, all that stuff. Well, then the players, of course, will agree. It's all your fault. You're calling crummy plays. Um, So I think that's why he's standing up for himself a little bit. And to Baker's point, um, James Hudson got eaten alive. And I don't know whether they had to go with – put Blake Hans or somebody in there as the tight end slash tackle to help or whatever. But that was something that didn't seem to, to work well. You know, sometimes in these cases, they're right about each other. Absolutely. Yeah. But I also know we've seen a lot worse splits in sports where time passes and they come back because in the off season, you know, Baker's going to be about surgery, getting better four to six months, I guess, Mary Kay uh, broke the story that he's going to have it what, in Los Angeles. I believe the surgery is going to be done. Yeah, that's where his doctor is that he's been seeing. So, yeah. so that's a good thing. Get going on that. And then you also will have the Browns to sit there and go, all right, we don't have Baker. Who do you have? I mean, do you really want to go with a quarterback you draft in the middle of the first round, whoever that may be, and play Case Keenum? I mean, you could do something like that, try to trade Baker. Baker would probably have a value. Now, here's an interesting thing. See what you think about this, David. Suppose you're at a team, you know, a quarterback hurting team. I, 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 nothing comes immediately to mind, but just your team doesn't have a quarterback. There's probably 10 of those. And you're going, well, let's look for a distressed property who had a good year before. And it, it wouldn't be hard to talk yourself into, well, in 2020, Baker really was good. He was a top 10 quarterback. The stats all show it. 2021, the third game, you know, he's got this torn labrum. He's playing all year with a torn labrum and, his, you know, and uh, a harness wearing. And uh, then he had other injuries too. And you think, well, we'll get the guy healthy. Maybe we can get him back to what he played for 2020. You know, another team could easily, and you could sell that to the, to the media if, if you were to trade to him. So I guess the consequence would be or the same thing. Well, what about the, frankly, the Bronx could talk themselves into that easily too. They could, they could. But then we go back to your question of like, if not him, then who? 
And yeah, it is exactly. it is a bad year in the draft for quarterbacks this year. I mean, mm-hmm. everything that this class coming out, they're saying it's the, the worst class in probably 10 or 15 years. Um, that a lot of these guys, none of them will have first round grades, but some of them will get taken in the first round just because quarterbacks are at such a premium. Uh, I mean, that's the boat that the Browns are in. If they do decide to move on, like they either need to find someone they love and probably overpay in the draft for him, or like you said, make a trade or, or, or something, but it's just, it's such a, it's a bad time for them to be going through this. And I could see, I really could see it working out both ways. I could see them patching this up in the off season and doing a thing where, the coaching staff says, Hey, we got to make some changes. We know that. And Baker saying, I got to play better. I'm going to be hundred percent. Let's run it back. I could also yeah. see them saying, you know what? You don't fit here. It's better if we just kind of all get a fresh start. I could, I really, it's, it's, it's two opposite ends of the spectrum and I could completely see both of them happening. The main thing is that the Browns have a say on this. Baker does not. I mean, you can do a, I mean, how silly would it be if Baker were to – I'm sitting out in training camp after having soldiers, shoulder surgery so I get traded. Uh, that doesn't help your value. So it's really on the Browns. You know, or then the, then the Browns say, you know, how about somebody like Mitch Trubisky? Let's try and rehab his career. You know, so you're basically going to be in a rehab situation, either physically or just trying to get a guy back on track with Baker or with someone else. Nobody's going to trade you a really good quarterback. No, and that's that's the challenge. And But, Terry, I would not undersell how much influence Baker and his agent would have in this. I mean, you, you know how this works. You've been around long enough. We both yeah, have to see this. You start dropping anonymous things in the media about how the coaching yeah. staff is dysfunctional, that they don't adjust, you know, all the things that you're griping about. Um, maybe to your, your family or your agent, all of a sudden those things start appearing in public. It's kind of like an OBJ situation where things start happening and it just has to end. Um, so I, I could see that happening. I really could. If Baker wanted out, I think he could find a way to make that happen. But who knows, right? But then you have to, you just, and when you're running your team, you have to just make sure you have a quarterback. Unless you want to do what I just simply suggested, you, you, you play Case Keenum next year. Let's say he's certainly fresh. He's rested. <laughs> he's ready. He's canned. He's ready to go. You know, and he knows the offense. If we, and this is here, here's the other thing, by the way, Case had a press conference today. Poor Case, he's rolled out there. And all the questions are about Baker. And that's understandable because what are you going to ask Case? You know, how did you like wearing your cap, holding the clipboard or the, you know, the iPad? There was nothing much to ask him. And so he was in a difficult spot there. You know, but he says some things like how Gussie Baker was. At one point, he put it was said it was a small miracle at times that he played. But what I would love to inject truth serum into him, and just simply ask him, "You watched all that? How many times do you think you knew you could do better simply because you're healthier?" And of course, the answer is what I have had that. You know, I wanted him to start the Detroit game. I wanted him to start the first Pittsburgh game. I could have picked some other games for him to start because the last six games, Baker was awful. And Baker is not as bad as we've seen in the last six games. The physical part was there. And then I just hold a lot of that on the Browns is that um, they may have cost themselves a game or two by trying to just have Baker force his way through all that. When you have a guy who is um, – it's funny in the press box, a couple of us were talking and I said, you know, Keenum, what do you think he is? And a couple of writers, well, he's mediocre or okay. I said, wouldn't that have been better than what we've been watching for the last month plus? 
media simply don't throw the ball to the other team all the time. Yeah, uh, Tony Grossi, I thought, had a good question of Stefanski earlier this week. He said, um, you know, you always say we're taking it week by week and we're looking at how guys look in practice and we're yeah. putting the best people on the field. How can you say that Baker Mayfield was the best guy to start that Green Bay game when he hadn't practiced in two weeks? Yeah. Um, and it kind of goes against, um, and I think that was that was a, something that you're talking about, is like a healthy Keenum was probably better than a, than an injured Baker Mayfield in a lot of these a lot of these games. And I think the Browns are going to yeah. so, have so, to uh, take inventory well, of that and this and look at the decision making there mm, right i think you know this also was an experienced gm second year head coach second year gm who were crazy glued to that theory that if the guy's the starting quarterback he says he's able to play he plays and we've heard that over and over if he's our starting quarterback he's our starting quarterback yeah and so anyway it's so, fun to watch, actually. That's the only thing. I'm glad Case is playing. I have to admit, I just did not want to see any more of Baker. I didn't want to watch this. I felt beat up after that game. I had to take some Tylenol. Yeah. And it was like fans were going through each of the nine sacks with, with him in yeah. some ways out there. So, so let's talk about Kevin Stefanski a little bit, you know, for people who watch like cop shows or courtroom dramas at the end, you know, if there's someone who dies, someone has to be held to blame. Yes. <laughs> so here we are at the end of a Brown season, no playoffs, no winning record. How much blame does Kevin Stefanski deserve for this? Having gone through everything they did with COVID and, and injuries to the starting quarterback and all that, where, where do you stand on, on Kevin Stefanski at this point? The last time I checked, which was a couple of days ago, they lead the NFL in pre-snap penalties. And I know I'm a little anal on this, just get hung on these things, penalties. Uh, Eric Mangini, I remember when he was here, I always knew penalties were bad, but he had all these things that showed you why. And he sat down with me once and he used to call these the self-inflicted wounds. And he's right. And they are self-inflicted that, I mean, twice in the Pittsburgh game, how many times have we seen it? Clowney was one and I forgot who the other lineman was. They put their hand down over the line of scrimmage. The ball isn't even, they're not even looking where is the line of scrimmage. So they had two of those, they had three false starts and they had an illegal motion. They had six in that game. That's coaching. Six. They just edged out the Detroit Lions, the last I looked for the most pre-snap penalties. So that's coaching. That has nothing to do with Baker, anything else. Weird play calling, somewhat with Baker, because when you're not sure what your QB can do, but the oddness of the Nick Chubb off the field and all that, you know, maybe we're seeing a little bit of the rigidness that Stefanski has because he had that system in his mind where, you know, Chubb plays these and Kareem Hunt plays this set of plays. And so then when Hunt wasn't there, then Ernest Johnson just simply fits into, the Ernest fits into Kareem's role. And so Nick's out on those plays. Well, makes no sense. Yeah, I, I wonder if that rigidity is going to be something that's going to come up this offseason. That's an interesting point, Terry, because you watch, and this goes back to what Baker Mayfield, you know, Baker certainly shares his shares part of the blame for what's been going on here Very in terms nice. of his footwork, his accuracy, and he'll admit all that. But um, you look at, it seems like the Browns go into a game with a game plan, and they're like, we're going to stick to it come hell or high water. And the James Hudson thing the other night, that was is coach it's close to coaching malpractice as you'll ever see. I mean, they, if you're, 
any NFL coach and you're going against the Steelers defense, what is the first thing you have to account for? And this goes back yeah. to the Bill Belichick school of coaching. You account yeah, take for, out the best for what? Like he's their yeah. best player on their defensive line and you've got to block him or chip him on every play. And the Browns, other- after seeing that, decided to put a rookie right tackle one-on-one with him several times. And we saw how that worked out. And they didn't seem like they adjusted a lot during the game. And that's just that's just basic stuff. Like what other t- – every time we see Miles Garrett go against the Patriots, what do we see? He's getting double teamed. He's getting chipped on every single play, and it just wears him down by the end of the game. And the Browns and they, they did not take decided- that approach. The Brown, you know, the other teams decide we will hold miles 15 times a game and we'll take two holds because it's worth, they won't call it every time. Secondly, this is now, I'm not a pure football guy. I've always said that. In fact, I remember asking a couple of uh, top executives over the years, you rotate your defensive linemen in and out a lot. Why is it when you are, watching your offensive line and the guy's just having a miserable time. You don't replace him or at least rest him. Where was the rule that you had to play James Hudson the whole game? Well, I think the Browns went in knowing that they wanted to throw the ball and James Hudson is a better pass blocker than Hans is. That's probably what they thought. But decision in the beginning. Right, but, but again, it all goes back to being rigid, like you're talking about. Yeah. Like you, I mean, you put, put boy yeah. cans in there so this poor kid could catch his breath. And you know, then you sit him down, and you could even pull your little iPad out and go, you know, here's what he's doing to you every single time. So w- look for this. Meantime, it Blake Hans goes in there and gets his brains beat in. Fine, he, the other guy was already getting his brains beat in. So, th- but that's what I'm now. These are things that I were to discuss. Now, there's probably up. Oh, you know, off the field stuff that I'm not aware of, but just the rigidity that I saw, you know, the the Ernest Johnson has to be Kareem Hunt. And uh, if you start a guy, he has to just stay in there. Um, and those are, and, and what are we doing? Why can't we get lined up right? Yeah. And, and you know, like you said, uh, we have a two minute back and it's going to be yeah. Dearness Johnson or Kareem Hunt and Nick Chubb can't play that role. Like, okay, why, why, why is that? And you've taken your best player off the field. Um, and the other thing about so being rigid is, is – yeah. go ahead, Terry, go ahead. Well, David, you watch it. I, how often – that was Baker calling in just to say that he, uh, <laughs> he's appreciating some of the support he's getting. Um, why is it, too, that um, – I mean, you could take Baker out at halftime of that game where he's getting killed in Pittsburgh. The playoffs are over. What was the point? I know he moved the ball some in the second half. He got some help. The, the Steelers actually pulled off everything at the end. And uh, But I just, I don't understand why you have, in football, you have to just stay this way. Where and Maybe because I'm more acclimated towards baseball or basketball, where you could just change it up a little bit and see what happens. Yeah, and just... This rigid theme is really interesting to me because the Browns, what they are, and Kevin Stefanski, we knew this is what he was going to be. It's like we're about we're three tight ends. We're going to run the ball and we're going to do play action. But you know how it is. Sometimes in a game, things aren't going right or things are stuck and it's kind of drudgery. And you always see coaches try something at that point. Maybe it's no huddle offense or maybe it's a trick play or there's a special teams play that. 
you know, when's the last time the Browns ran a punt or a kickoff back for a touchdown? I mean, the, there's nothing that happens will, during the course of a game that gives the, the, the coaching staff gives the team just that little push just to get them going or to get them over the hump. And, and you never see that with the Browns these last couple of years where there's just a, 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 just something that the coaches do to give the players a little bit of an edge. I think that's really missing. And it might go back to the rigidity thing. I don't know. Well, we're going to say that's one thing that David, we got a lot of time to go over all this stuff. <laughs> we sure do. <laughs> that's for sure. But I, we both feel the frustration and, and the, the, the poor fans. I just, you know, I get so sick of writing these depressing stories out of Pittsburgh. That's why last year, because I was watching this game, thinking that game a year ago was as a sports writer, that was like the greatest Christmas present I could have gotten. It was just so much fun, not just because they beat the Steelers, but I went back and they only committed four penalties for a grand total of 20 yards and no interceptions, no sacks. Um, Steelers, Ben came storming back, but they, they didn't collapse totally. And they won with, you know, people want Alex Van Pelt to call the plays, but my guess is he called the same plays probably pretty much uh, uh, Stefanski would have in that game. And uh, they just, they just, Looks tough, smart, and accountable. I miss that team. Yeah, and you know how it is with coaches and managers in baseball. Like, they're growing just like the rest of us are. And, and this is going to be yeah. a big – I think it's going to be a big learning season for Kevin Stefanski and his staff. So, hey, on a, on a more uh, cheerful note, um, let's talk – We've been on the Browns for 20 minutes here, but we do want to talk about Doug Deacon and his remarkable career, 50 years involved with the Browns. And he's decided he's going to step away from the microphone after Sunday's game against Cincinnati and the team's going to honor him. Uh, You've known Doug for a long time and just the impact he's had here, both within the Browns, in the community, charity work, just uh, just a real pillar of Cleveland. Special Olympics has been dear to his heart because his brother, one of his brothers is a special Olympian and, and that. And then the other thing, you know, he did open up to me. I haven't seen it in any other media accounts where he talked about why, which is that, you know, he said both hips replaced and both knees replaced. And his last hip operation was really rough. He had it in February. And then suddenly he realized when he was doing his workouts and things for his hip, his heart, as he called it, started to flutter. And uh, AFib is what it turned out he has. He just said the medicine for that's pretty rough at least with him as they try to get it right. And he said, he just, as he said to me, I want to be able to walk away from the press box when I can still walk away from the press box. Um, and so that's, he's going to miss it. I mean, he, he is, you know, Mr. Brown. And what I've loved about him is unlike a lot of other former players that go in the booth who think they have to be the star, Doug was the left ankle, the left, excuse me, left tackle protecting his quarterback on the field for 203 consecutive starts. And he was the left tackle in the booth protecting his play-by-play guy, who he would tell you, Neff Chandler, Casey Coleman, Jimmy Donovan, they're the stars. I'm here to help them. And it's not easy for players to do that, but he did. And I think that's why people find him you know, so enduring. And he'll give opinions when asked. But he doesn't think that every word from his, everything that runs through his brain must immediately come out of his mouth. <laughs> and that's how I think the fans gravitate to his analysis. Yes. They, they want to hear what he thinks. And 
Um, he's done it all. And, uh, you know, it's going to be, nobody's going to be able to replace him. Uh, there's no doubt about it, but uh, congratulations to Doug. He'll be lining up to do so. I'll tell you that. He sure will. Yeah. You get to work with Jim Donovan and, uh, and it's a good gig, but uh, nobody's going to do it better than Doug Deacon. That's for sure. So, all right, Terry, let's take a break. Uh, we'll come back. We'll talk a little bit of calves. Um, I got some Doug Deacon related trivia. It's a hard question this week. So we'll take a break. We'll come back on Terry's talking. We are back on Terry's talking David Campbell with Terry Pluto, Terry, the Cavs have been through a really rough month in terms of COVID and injuries and um, just a lot of instability with the roster and moving guys in and out. And they've traded for Rajon Rondo. Uh, They're 21 and 17. They're sixth place in the Eastern conference and they've lost four of five, but I think a lot of ways they feel like kind of this some of the adversities behind them and maybe there's some some good times ahead um where are you at with the Cavs right now and also they weren't getting blown out in those losses I mean they're playing games without their guards and everything else so you go back to you know the old stuff tough smart accountable that's the team I see on the floor at Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse I mean they I watched the Memphis game those teams are almost mirror images of each other not just I'm talking silly on personnel but the attitude, these were two tough defensive minded teams going at it. And, you know, the, the Cavs could have gotten a call at the end of the game because John Morant clearly walked when they were pressing him. They didn't call it. Uh, but I just loved it. It just loved the way that both teams are playing. And, you know, they pulled this Brandon Goodwin out of nowhere and he's helping them. Uh Garland comes off the COVID list. He hadn't played in two weeks and went from 27 and something, 27 and 10. Uh, Mobley, you know, here's what another thing I love about the Cavs. Mobley is going to be probably rookie of the year. He's probably their best player. He certainly will be by next year. If not, I mean, Garland's close too. But in the past, it would be all about this kid. You know, he would be the center of the basketball universe on the team. It's not. It's really all about, you know, their big three, Garland and um, and Garland Mobley and Allen and the rise of Kevin Love. That's why, and JB is the right coach for this. He's a defensive, tough-minded coach. He, he did this uh, in the past with Houston when he took over a team that was four and seven. And he went 37 and 34 the rest of the year. Uh, and then, of course, he didn't get the job the following year anyway. Mike, they hired Mike D'Antoni. But he, he, you could just see that there's something with him. And I, I, just, I just like him. And I haven't gotten, I don't think, a negative email on the Cavs in months. Yeah, and that goes back to JB, like you're saying, in terms of the culture that he's said. And it's funny, you watch him talk before and after games, it seems like he's talking about a boxing match sometimes, about we got to come out and slug them first before they slug us. Yeah. and. Yeah. Right. And then we are, and he, he is a great way of, you know, I've, I've learned stuff from listening to him and I've listened to some of the best in basketball because of when I did the NBA for years. And he said something about two weeks ago, he said, you know, one of the things I admire about, especially he said, especially Allen and Mobley, he said, these guys will go for the tough block. And what I mean that he said, a lot of players don't like to get dunked on. He says, they're not afraid to get dunked on. So they'll go up there, even if it's unlikely they're going to block the shot. You know, they're going up there anyway. And I go, he's right. And I've never thought of that. 
And those two kids will do that. And then, of course, Mob Mobley, just his blocks always stay in bounds. And then you watch Jared Allen. I love how Jared Allen the other day said, you know, we like it when Mobley shoots because he never misses. Actually, the guy who never misses is Jared Allen. <laughs> and he was, you know, tossing that uh, bouquet out. So I, you can't create that enthusiasm just saying we want to be enthusiastic and, and unselfish. It has to come from the players and, and that, and they just have the right group. Uh, my understanding is that um, Kobe Allen's looking to still add something else, another guard or whatever, but basically I was told he wants to work around the edges. In other words, don't mess with the big core of the team. Like we'll try Rondo. If that doesn't work, he's on a, he's on a basically a veteran minimum contract to bring somebody else in or bring somebody else in to help Rondo. And, and don't, you finally have something that fans are attracted to. Nobody was saying this team was even supposed to make the playoffs. I believe ESPN ranked them dead last. They just didn't like them at all. And so just ride this thing out and see what, where it goes. So we didn't get a chance to talk about the Rajon Rondo trade because I think it happened mm-hmm. right after we did our podcast last week. But um, talking about going, you know, working at the edges, this isn't the Rajon Rondo of 10 years ago. He's in his 16th no. year in the league, but it's smart on a number of levels because, because he can give them some minutes. And he's also going to be another good mentor for Darius Garland and the other young players, right? Um, how did you feel about the trade? And Good move, right? And well, low, and low I investment. I called Mike Fratello about him because Fratello does some Clippers games. And now he was at the Lakers this year, didn't play much and wasn't playing particularly well. But he played very well for the Clippers last year in about 20 minutes a game. And so I asked Mike about that. And Fratello said that um, the one thing that will hurt is that he's not a good outside shooter. He goes, he's improved a little bit, but he's not very good. He said, but in terms of the other things, the defense – JB will love him. He's his kind of guy, you know, a little fiery, a little edgy. Uh, and that's going to be exactly something they need for the veteran point guard to play behind Darius Garland. I do worry that they're playing Garland a lot of minutes. Now he's back. I don't like seeing Dar- Garland more than 30 to 32 minutes because remember, he does have an injury history. Uh, not only his knee, but he had a shoulder thing. He just, he's small and he goes in there and he gets beat up. So if they could take some of that load off of him, and that's why I think they'll be looking at other players too. But uh, Mike Fratello thought it was a great pickup because it cost him nothing, and he's on a short-term cheap contract. If it doesn't work, you run him out. In the meantime, and he, 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 his agent made it very clear to the Cavaliers because they were checking on all that, that he absolutely wanted out of L.A. and wanted to come to the uh, Cavaliers because, you know, when you play with LeBron, your guards better be able to shoot from the outside. You don't, you don't see the ball. You're going to be a lot of, uh, uh, set, you know, standstill shooting up yep. point line and all that stuff. And that's not his game. So I want, I'm anxious to see it. And it was nice as Brandon Goodwin guy. It's a guy, I guess, JB had in camp at Memphis at one time. I kind of liked him. You know, he's played some in the NBA. Um, I, I wince every time he shoots from the three point line because it doesn't look good and it doesn't go in. But he's, you know, he's all over the floor. He's scrambling around. He's playing for his life. And the more guys you have like that, uh, the better on this team, because that's what they've got to be about. And I like JB said, he goes, whatever we got, we're bringing it every night when they asked about being shorthanded. And that is very true. And Fratello said to me, he goes, you don't want to play the Cavs right now. You know, well, you have the two big guys or the three big guys, or he goes, they are so different. And they're so hard to prepare for. 
Um, he said, it's, it's really hard in the regular season to change around some of the things you do. Like when you're just used to driving in and scoring and that, so these guys are coming after you and they don't get into foul trouble. Yeah. Like you said, even when they go up to block shots, they're usually not fouling. And I think, I think, um, yeah, for all, for all these blocks they try to make. So, so that's what's amazing about mobile because usually a rookie's not getting a break on those, but, and it doesn't look like he's falling much. His his arms like they go to the second deck at Rocket Fort Mortgage Arena. I mean, I, and he's always straight up and down. Straight, straight up, up boys. His dad should feel so good about that young man. You know, his father was an assistant coach at USC and then coached him when he was younger. Um, polite, you know, doing all the right stuff. Very little ego, and and he's still offensively. Kevin Love called him raw. But, but still a lot of upside. He's raw. And by the way, in his last, you know, five games, he's averaging like 19 points since he came off the COVID list. In other words, he still doesn't really know what he's doing offensively. And he's coming close to 20. Yep. And shooting 61%. Bright future, bright future. So, so um, we're taping this on Wednesday afternoon. Actually, Rajon Rondo is going to be meeting with the media later today. So that'll be interesting to hear what he has to say. Um, so, and we might see him playing on Friday. The Cavs are starting a six game road trip Friday at Portland, and then they're oh, going to golden state on Sunday. They've got a game at Sacramento on Monday. And then the last three games are next Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday at Utah, San Antonio, and Oklahoma city. Hey, Terry, oh, real yeah. fast before, before we wrap up, um, our Cavs segment here, it's kind of been a quiet, uh, secret in a lot of ways, but the all-star game is in Cleveland next month. And not a lot of people are talking no. about it because the Browns have taken so much of the um, attention this football season. But if you're picking the all-star team, Jared Allen, what he had 22 points and 12 rebounds against Memphis. I think that's his 19th double double. How many calves should make the all-star team? If you were picking the team right now, who do you think deserves to be on there real Two. quick? Two. I would take Jarrett and, Dar- and Darius Garland. Um, with, although if Kevin Love keeps scoring 20 points a game off the bench, you might think about that. But definitely to Garland is probably top three point guard in the East. I'd have to kind of go through the, through the list, but he definitely is. And if you wanted somebody else to represent the rise of the Cavs and who they are, it is Jared Allen. And then Evan Mobley plays in the Rising Stars game. Rising Star game, yeah. And I have I remember Fitting LeBron game. didn't play in the All-Star game his first year. I think he survived. <laughs> he was mad he sure about did. it. He was mad about it, but he survived. Uh, so you can um, – I mean, if I were to reward somebody for rebounding and being unselfish and all that, Mobley fits, but, boy, boy that's Jared Allen. I mean, he could be demanding of all the time. I'm making 70% of my shots. And probably on some of those he missed, he's getting fouled, but they just don't call it. All right. All-star voting is in progress. We'll see how the teams come together. It's hard to believe that's coming up already. It's, uh, it's amazing. So, all right. You want to do some uh, Hey Terry qu- questions? You ready? Sure. All right. This one is from Paul Cosgrove. He sent this in via email. And again, just to remind you, you can email questions for Hey Terry into sports at cleveland.com. Or if you want to hit Terry up on his Facebook page, um, Paul Cosgrove says, Hey, Dave and Terry, what happens when Andrew Barry insists that Kevin Stefanski do the following and he refuses, give up play calling responsibility, replaces his receiver coach and 
and offensive coordinator, repl uh, replace his ineffective offensive scheme and do something more in tune with today's NFL. What do you think would be the reaction if Andrew Barry insisted that? Or I guess my question would be, would they even insist that or would they kind of try and work through it together? What changes do you think they should be considering? I mean, the, probably the big issue would be the play calling. Um, and if you were going to do that, then you would just say, let's keep Alex Van Pelt calling the plays. I don't think the scheme is that antiquated. I just don't. You see the Rams run some of it, the 49ers run some of it. You just need to just to get it to work better. Last year, it didn't look antiquated. Yeah, and the thing they now, don't have is, is a receiver who can take the top off a of defense, and that would open everything also, else up, right? And, and I also want to be fair. Baker did not have the same zip on the ball and everything else as he did a year ago after he was hurt. Those balls were floating downfield, but before they used to just really go on a line. You know, I just thought that uh, his arm strength is not the same, probably because of what the left shoulder he couldn't do. But so that hurt that um, that problem, too. But uh, now, if you wanted to do all that and like change the whole staff around and everything, uh, that would be a problem. And I'm not sure you want to do all this stuff. I mean, this is kind of Cleveland Browns thinking. Let's just you know drop a bomb on everything. And you think tweaking is is the way they should go because the, the yes. foundation is yes. there. And, and you, you can make a case for him that, Kevin, and I would, your team led the NFL in pre-snap penalties. We need a – and your special teams have problems. Now, I would talk about the special teams, Coach. You didn't mention that. All right. The special teams have not been good. Well, we certainly can get into that and some, some more down the road here, as you said. So okay. probably a whole podcast to be done on the special teams. All right, this one. Uh, well, you know I'm about kickers. You guys made fun of me at the start of the year about kickers. Yeah, the thing is, if you're Mike Prefer, you can't control whether the kicker makes the kick or not. I mean, you're picking the kicker, but once you put the guy out there. So yeah, that, I, I, I want to look at how many penalties is. they had on special teams and where that ranks. Yeah. We'll do a special teams deep dive sometime. You're into my obsession. I'm going to shut up. <laughs> hey, it's, it's special teams makes a difference. There's no doubt about it. So, all right, Terry, this one came in on your Facebook page from James Taylor. I don't think it's the James Taylor, but another James Taylor. He says, hey, Terry, can you discuss Doug Deacon's career? We kind of touched on it earlier. Can you expand on the chapter from your book, Vintage Browns? I really enjoyed that chapter and the whole book for that matter. I know you've gotten some great feedback, feedback about your book book vintage browns and especially on the deacon chapter so um why don't you tell people who maybe haven't read that yet yeah i mean that's the remarkable thing about you know how he was drafted like downstairs i forgot whether he was in the in the basement or garage or somewhere and he found out he was drafted and fourth round and he played tight end the whole time at illinois and they drafted him as a as a tackle and just totaled that and then he goes upstairs and tells his mother who's having her bridge club over and said, Mom, I got just got drafted by the Browns. She looked up and said, Oh, that's that's good, honey. And she said, Two clubs. <laughs> it's like nothing, you know. This is what I love about Doug. That story says so much. You know, it's just like he played with with broken hands and he played with torn meniscus. He played 200 and he never, he just you just went to work. He said, That's how his dad was. His dad went to just told you, just keep your mouth shut and go to work. Yeah, I think I was telling you, too, like I have a little bit of a connection to Doug Deacon. I, I also went to Illinois and my first yeah. job out of journalism school was in Streeter, Illinois, which is Doug Deacon's hometown, as you know. And his family had a farm 
there in the middle of Illinois and there was a barn and talk about the like understated. Most people would have yeah. like home of Doug Deacon, you know, on their yeah. front lawn. And there was a little Browns helmet with a number 73 on it painted on the side of their family barn. And that was the only indication wow. that there was any connection to Doug Deacon there. And it was just, it just fit in with like the understated personality that he has and the family had just, it was just, Hey, here it is. And, and it uh, is, yeah. we're proud of it, but we're not going to trumpet it to everybody. So, all right, Terry, this one also is from your Facebook page from Brent, Brett Milner. Brett says, Hey Terry, do you think missing stump Mitchell affected the rotation of the running backs for the Browns? Lots of times everyone was wondering why Nick Chubb was not in the game. And we did find out after the game from Kevin Stefanski that Nick Chubb was battling rib injury and asked to come out and needed a rest. But um, do you think Stump Mitchell's absence, he's had some uh, time away from the team for some personal stuff, but do you think that's affected the rotation, what the Browns have been doing? Yeah, he has some medical issues, uh, the Stump, because in fact, I saw him, he's like on a cane in that. It's like a lot of these guys, you know, they, you know Stump was a – Great running back at Citadel and then played a number of years in the NFL and he got beat up. I think it hurt. I don't know if necessarily the rotation, but he is a revered figure uh, by those running backs. Um, and I just think also where with the changes going, um, I'm not sure he was how much he was around, but yes, he's missed. I, I could definitely tell you that. He also probably has more of a voice with the head coach than whoever was replacing him, which I don't even know who it was. All right, we wish the best for Stump, and hopefully you can get back to full strength, and we'll be uh, pulling for you, Stump. Um, all right, Terry, how about a Terry's trivia question? I have a really hard one this week, but I'm betting some Browns fans might know the answer to this one. It's Doug Deacon related. So Doug Deacon, as you know, wore number 73 for the Browns from 1971 to 1984, and everybody knows Joe Thomas wore number 73. But when Doug Deacon retired from the field after the 1984 season, who was the next player to wear number 73 for the Browns? I'm going to give you a hint. He was a defensive tackle on the 1995 team. He wore number 73. So nobody wore 73 from 1984 to 1995. And this guy played several years with the Patriots. And then he had one season with the Browns in 1995. He played in all 16 games and he had six, 13 starts. It's a tough one. I knew it was going to be tough. Yeah, I was if you get it, like, I'm going to be amazed. Or something, but that's that's not. So him. Tim Goad. Do you remember Tim Goad, who was a? No, I actually don't. <laughs> I bet I have that... to admit the '94, especially the '95 season, to me, is this awful memory which I never want to revisit again. And that was like the last season with the move and and that type of thing. I'm even having a blank out on who replaced Doug at left tackle. Dan Boy, Frank. that's a good question. There was a series of guys who went through because I was looking to see who who came after him, and there, there was a there was a parade of people between him and Joe Thomas. Yeah, Thomas. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, that was a hard one, but I bet there's some Browns fans. Oh, the other guy that was really good was Tony Jones. I think he played left tackle for quite a while, but I don't think that was immediately after Doug. Yeah, I think that came that a couple later. I think you're right. Um. All right, Terry. Hey, the uh, Vintage Browns book sounds like it's being well-received. and Yeah, it is. It's, selling it's, it's well. out there. Yeah, so you could always get that. And um, I'm just grateful. Hey, in this environment where I, I was so glad to see people ordering it online and everywhere else because we weren't sure how it was going to sell given the pandemic and not able to do much promotion. So Great. And then I did want to ask, what are, what are you thinking for your faith column this week? I know um, you look forward to writing that every week and kind of sharing some insights. From I actually have some people topics. for some things about 
I'm going to work on it later on today. What advice do you wish somebody had given you? What advice does somebody gave you that uh, you wish you had listened to? Basically, it's on advice. In fact, one of the ones I, I start with, and uh, I forgot why the subject came up, but I was talking to Bob Knight, the former coach. And I remember he spoke in Worcester at, at a thing. And I sat down and talked to him for quite a while. We had a mutual friend named Roy Bates, who was a legendary high school coach down in Worcester. And we got into something and he said, Knight said, I always, almost always answer when people ask me to do something with a no. And I said, why is that? He goes, it's much easier to go from a no to a yes than a yes to a no. My guess is Knight got that from somewhere else, but I got it from Knight. And it's a really good thing because especially I find a lot of times in the, in the faith communities, people want to seem nice. So they say yes to something knowing they're never going to do it. And Knight had an expletive fill thing of phonies who do that, you know, <laughs> uh, and, but it, so the, that's one of the things too. So it, it's a wise thing. Cause you could always, he's correct. If you change your mind and want to go do it, most of the time people are delighted you did, but man, if you say yes, and then all of a sudden it's a no, I mean, the interest, you could talk to any, any church anywhere else. They'll say, you know, 20% of the people who sign up for something don't show up or call to say they can't. Now, sometimes you agree to something and, you know, somebody gets taken to the hospital or whatever, but that's different than just, I just wanted to be nice and agree and then no, I'm never going to do it. So we're going to have advice. And the Bob Knight tie-in. All right. That'll be a really interesting read. That'll Bob be coming out. Lead off man in it. That's right. Um, so the uh, that'll be coming out on cleveland.com Saturday morning, and it'll be on Sunday's Plain Dealer. So be sure to catch that. Terry, thanks again for another uh, week of podcasting. It's always fun. Happy New Year to everybody out there. And we will catch you next week on Terry's Talking.